podcast one production. It's April 2008, and I'm in the middle of a road trip across Australia with Jimmy Wales. He's the founder and moving force behind Wikipedia. We spent a week talking to groups of educators all around the country, explaining how Wikipedia could help them teach and help kids learn. It's hard to believe, but that was a wildly radical idea less than a decade ago. Now, in the middle of that week, in the middle of the night, on a red-eye flight back from Perth to Sydney... Jimmy and I had a long, rambling conversation. You on Facebook, he asked. I wasn't. It had only very recently opened up to people outside of a few universities. You gotta get on Facebook, he replied. It's gonna be huge. Neither of us had any sense that Facebook would grow to encompass more than two billion users globally, with a billion and a half checking in every single day, sharing all of the important things in their lives. This is Facebook's world. We just share in it. As we sat on that flight, neither of us could yet see how the rise of Facebook would permanently transform our world. But it has. Billions use Facebook as the primary source of news about the world. What Facebook tells them is real, that's reality for them. But how much truth is there in all of this sharing? Not as much as we might like. That mix of truth and untruth, it's broken our world in some interesting ways, or rather, it's broken our worldviews. The shared version of reality we've experienced as the co-creators of a family or a company or a city or even a nation, all of that is coming to an end. On this episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll explore how we got here, how the innocent sharing of experience precipitated the last days of reality. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a time of ubiquitous connectivity, pervasive sharing of experience, and a universe of knowledge available at the end of one's hand. It should have been a bright summer of reason and concord, but as it turned hard winter, we began to wonder where it had all gone wrong, how the machinery we'd constructed to enlighten and support had been systematically reconstructed into an engine of destruction for the war of all against all. The mid-21st century resembles nothing so much as the opening stages of a civil war, as consensus collapses and even basic facts are now seen as somehow partisan. Fifty years ago, U.S. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan warned, We are all entitled to our own opinions, but we are not entitled to our own facts. That may have been true once, but in this century, we can gather an army of believers to rally behind our less-than-factual facts. We have plenty of sources for these alternative facts. Consider this report from BuzzFeed News in November 2016, just days before the U.S. presidential election. Over the past year, the Macedonian town of Velish, population 45,000, has experienced a digital gold rush as locals launched at least 140 U.S. politics websites. 
These sites have American-sounding domain names, such as worldpoliticus.com, trumpvision365.com, usconservativetoday.com, donaldtrumpnews.co, and usadailypolitics.com. They almost all publish aggressively pro-Trump content aimed at conservatives and Trump supporters in the U.S. The young Macedonians who run these sites say they don't care about Donald Trump. Several teens and young men who run these sites told BuzzFeed News that they learned the best way to generate traffic is to get their politics stories to spread on Facebook. And the best way to generate shares on Facebook is to publish sensational and often false content that caters to Trump supporters. Those Macedonian teenagers had no particular political stake in the American election. They were in it for the money. The stories they found, or invented, earned them hundreds to thousands of dollars in Google ads as each story got picked up and shared through Facebook. Those fake news stories floated past as jetsam on Facebook's news feed, that continuous stream of shared content drawn from a user's Facebook contacts, a stream generated by everything everyone else posts or shares. A decade ago, that news feed had a raw, unfiltered quality. You saw everyone doing everything. As Facebook has matured, it has engaged increasingly opaque algorithms to curate or censor the news feed, producing something that feels much more comfortable and familiar. This seems like a useful feature to have, but the taming of the newsfeed comes with a consequence. Facebook's billions of users compose their worldview from what flows through their feeds. Consider the number of people on public transport, or any public place, staring into their smartphones, reviewing their feeds, marveling at the doings of their friends, reading articles posted by family members, sharing video clips or the latest celebrity outrages. It's an activity that's so routine we ignore it. Newsfeed curation shapes what a Facebook user learns about the world. Some of that curation is driven by the user's likes, but a larger part is derived from Facebook's deep analysis of a user's behavior. And that brings us to artificial intelligence. The term artificial intelligence gets thrown around a lot, particularly on this podcast, but what it means, at essence is designing systems that digest a lot of data, use that data to make predictions, and then learn from their mistaken predictions, improving their success rate. Facebook uses machine learning to predict what makes its users respond positively. In 2016, Facebook announced an effort to turn the entire platform into a gigantic machine learning system with billions of little pieces of software called agents, each learning from the interaction of every single user. So every user has their own agent that's watching that user all of the time. Now, we've spoken about AlphaGo on this podcast, which played and lost thousands of games against human players, eventually learning enough from those losses to beat any human. Just as AlphaGo got better by playing human players... Facebook gets better at serving up just what makes its users stay stuck to the site. Facebook does this by watching and learning from every user interaction. Every click, every scroll, every link followed to an outside website. Facebook uses all of this to build a profile that models the behavior and interests of its users. 
And that profile can then be tested against any post or any article to predict how the user will respond to it. Will it keep them glued to Facebook or will they close the app and get on with their lives? Facebook has a simulation of each of its users, a simulation built, trained, and tested through continuous surveillance, and then uses that simulation to filter out any content from the newsfeed that might drive users off the site. Now, where the profile gets it wrong and a user's engagement with Facebook observably declines, the profile learns from its mistake, just like AlphaGo, and avoids repeating that behavior. Where the profile predictions lead to increased stickiness, Facebook remembers that too, using what it has learned to fine-tune a user's newsfeed. Facebook uses cookies. These are invisible bits of data hidden within the web browser to track the behavior of its users even when they're not on the Facebook site, even if they're not users of Facebook. So Facebook knows where its users spend time online and how much time they spend there. All of that allows Facebook to tailor a newsfeed to echo the interests of each user. There's no magic to it beyond endless surveillance. What does Facebook look like in 2018? Picture billions of profiles, each of them an artificial intelligence, each continuously learning from every click and every scroll of each user, giving Facebook a depth of insight into its users unlike anything ever before known. In our first series, design thinker Andy Pauline put it succinctly. So when you're talking about profiles, um, so my wife is a psychologist and psychoanalyst, and one of the things that her job involves is seeing patterns in people's lives that they're not able to see themselves mm-hmm. and, and guiding the, those patients to, to see those patterns. And of course, all of the kind of machine learning, all of that stuff that's going on in those living services, they probably know us in many respects better than we know ourselves. So machine learning, again, is something that's sitting on top of that data stream, constantly looking for the patterns in that stream, and then actually taking those patterns out and go, oh, here are the patterns that define Andy, here are the patterns that define Mark. Facebook hides these patterns from its users, using them for its own benefit. Facebook doesn't make money by liberating its users from any neurotic or destructive patterns of behaviors it observes. Instead, Facebook monetizes them. Does that sound too harsh? After all, hasn't Mark Zuckerberg framed Facebook's corporate goal as give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together? If only that were true. A story came to light in 2017 that exposes this statement as pure, mendacious marketing propaganda. It was splashed across the front page of the May 1st issue of The Australian, and here's an excerpt. Facebook is using sophisticated algorithms to identify and exploit Australians as young as 14 by allowing advertisers to target them at their most vulnerable, including when they feel worthless and insecure. Secret internal documents reveal. A 23-page Facebook document seen by the Australian marked confidential, internal only, and dated 2017 outlines how the social network can target moments when young people need a confidence boost in pinpoint detail by monitoring posts, pictures, interactions, and internet activity in real time. Facebook can work out when young people feel stressed, defeated overwhelmed, anxious, nervous, stupid, silly, useless, and a failure, the document states. 
Rumors about Facebook's advertising sales methods have percolated in media circles for several years, but until now there's been no hard evidence nor any suggestion that they go to such considerable lengths to commercialize their youngest users. In a move that raises profound ethical questions about Facebook's use of covert surveillance, the document lays out how the world's biggest social network is gathering psychological insights on 6.4 million high schoolers, tertiary students and young Australians and New Zealanders in the workforce to sell targeted advertising. A presentation prepared for one of Australia's top four banks shows how the U.S. $415 billion advertising-driven giant has built a database of Facebook users that is made up of 1.9 million high schoolers with an average age of 16, 1.5 million tertiary students averaging 21 years old, and 3 million young workers averaging 26 years old. Detailed information on mood shifts among young people is based on internal Facebook data, the document states, shareable under non-disclosure agreement only and is not publicly available. The document was prepared by two of Facebook's top Australian executives, David Fernandez and Andy Sin, and includes information on when young people exhibit nervous excitement and emotions related to conquering fears. After being contacted by the Australian, Facebook issued an apology and said it had opened an investigation, admitting it was wrong to target young children in this way. Quote, We have opened an investigation to understand the process failure and improve our oversight. We will undertake disciplinary and other processes as appropriate. End quote. To make their site sticky, Facebook calls it increasing user engagement, Facebook profiled and simulated their billions of users. Once Facebook had those profiles, it had gained a real-time insight into how every one of its users was feeling, reacting, responding. And Facebook offered this real-time data for sale to its biggest customers. It sounds like science fiction, but it's not. It's what happens when you deploy a machine learning system at global scale across billions of smartphones. It learns and it learns and it learns, eventually knowing the users better than they know themselves. Once you know them that well, you can manipulate them in pretty much any way you like. Rob Tursick spelled this out in Series 1. Engagement is a code word for addiction, right? Mm-hmm. That's, the two words are interchangeable. We, we talk about engagement with advertisers. What we really mean is people are hooked and they can't turn, they can't look away they can't turn away from this. Um, you get that fear of missing out. That's also a part of it. So um, during the election campaign, it got to fever pitch, and of course you've heard the stories about Macedonian teenagers generating fake news about Republicans. You know, the things that were aimed at people that would simply get a rise out of them. News that was absolutely untrue. You know, Hillary Clinton has some fatal infection or something. Right, or, or was having seizures and had to yeah. wear special glasses or. And we can none laugh. of this is true, by the way, listeners. <laughs> none of this is true. We want to make clear this well, is all fake news. We can laugh at the stupidity of the people who fall for that and click and share those kinds of stories. But the reality is all of us fall into this trance, and it is a trance. You're mesmerized by this news feed, and it's optimized for your own particular attention. So they have a tremendous amount of information now that's psychological in nature. This mm-hmm. isn't behavioral anymore. Now they have psychological insight into what provokes you, what gets you excited, what gets you engaged, what keeps you staying on the page. They know how long you dwell. Even if you're scrolling down that feed, they know how long you dwell on each thing. Yeah, because again, every time you touch the screen of that smartphone, mm-hmm. it sends a little message back to Facebook. Yeah. So uh, the way to think about Facebook is... Um, you know, a lot of people are, are 
outraged when um, a pharmaceutical company or like a skincare company will test their products on animals. But the way to think about Facebook is they're actually testing their product on live human beings. And this is very troubling. If you think about it, you're the test subject, right? Often, by and large, you're on the receiving end. Facebook built a company that uses artificial intelligence at global scale to create a service that is so good at predicting what you like, then delivering it to you, you never want to look away. Facebook is working with what's already inside of us. It's an amplifier. If you're a dog lover, you'll see more dogs. If you're a film lover, you'll see more films. If you're a Trump lover, well, those Macedonian teenagers found a way to exploit that amplifier to make themselves more money than they'd ever seen before. Yet that's only half of it. Once Facebook had that profile data, real-time emotional data about its users, they offered this data to their advertising partners. Some of those partners, well, they had ambitions beyond selling financial services. When we return, we'll explore the new landscape of political manipulation, a world that Facebook has made possible. Welcome back to The Next Billion Seconds, where we're taking a look at how Facebook's harnessing of artificial intelligence to build profiles made the site irresistibly addictive, but had some unintended consequences. Now, to understand these consequences, let me share an illuminating experiment that's been performed a fair few times. Stand in front of a math classroom. Lecture the students on how numerous studies have shown that women just don't have the brains for maths, and then test them. You'll find that the women in this class will measurably underperform compared to a class that hasn't heard that lecture. Never mind that the research is fabricated, it's complete poppycock. Just hearing it is enough. People are persuadable. Give them the right message at the right moment, and you can change the way they respond. Back in 2017, the UK's Observer published a lengthy article about a shadowy firm named Cambridge Analytica. The article showed how Cambridge Analytica played an instrumental role in the highly unexpected results of both the Brexit referendum and the 2016 US presidential election. Founded by hedge fund billionaire Robert Mercer, who's a world-class computer scientist, Cambridge Analytica harvests every bit of data publicly available about a voter, cross-references it to generate a profile of that voter, and then, depending on the specifics of the profile, purchases Facebook advertising targeted at the voter and designed to trigger that voter into making a desired voting choice. Now, at the time the article came out, the whole story seemed almost the stuff of fringe conspiracy. But today we know that every last bit of it was true. The profiling, the targeting, the clever ads, carefully designed to keep specific types of both Hillary and Remain supporters away from the polls. People are persuadable. And given the right message at the right moment, Cambridge Analytica changed the way they responded. Some have argued that Cambridge Analytica doesn't have that sort of power over individuals. But if that's true, then no political advertising would ever work. And that flies in the face of a century of evidence. Now, how effective is this targeting of individuals based on their profiles? Well, we don't yet know. Is it more effective than blanketing the airwaves with TV ads? It certainly provides better bang for the buck. But did Cambridge Analytica swing the Brexit vote? Did it help elect Donald Trump? 
We can't know for sure, but we know it was part of the story. And we know how powerful the profiling is these days because Facebook has been exposed using that profile to get advertising messages to teenagers at their most vulnerable. Why would Cambridge Analytica treat voters any differently? Steve Bannon, former special advisor to President Trump and a former vice president of Cambridge Analytica, called the firm a weapon of psychological warfare. Facebook gave that weapon of war global reach. Now, in 2018, it was revealed that Cambridge Analytica ended up with 55 million illegally gotten Facebook profiles. 55 million that went in and became more fodder for their voter profiling. But that's not all of it. It's that Cambridge Analytica was able to use Facebook to deliver these highly targeted ads to nudge voters. Now, Cambridge Analytica is gone. Like a cockroach, it disappeared as soon as a bit of light was shined on it. All of its intellectual property was transferred to two companies, Emmerdata and Firecrest Technologies, and they'll be back. We haven't seen the end of voter targeting via artificial intelligence profiling. More likely, we've just seen the opening shots in a war that will stretch over much of the next billion seconds as we use artificial intelligence to sway minds in order to shape the commercial and political order, to shape reality. If you've been to our website, nextbillionseconds.com, and clicked on the share button at the bottom of a post, you'll see most of the usual suspects. You'll see Twitter and LinkedIn and Reddit and Pocket. You won't find the two most obvious, Facebook and Instagram. And that's probably doing this podcast a disservice. After all, Facebook is where the world shares. But as is now clear, I'm not a fan. Facebook is extractive. It takes what we share and uses it against us or lets its partners use it against us. So we don't promote on Facebook and we don't share through Facebook. But is that a reasonable approach for everyone? Eight years ago, I quit Facebook. I had joined it because Jimmy Wales asked me to. But I quit long before it became this global-scale artificial intelligence profiling system. I had questions about how my social graph, that's the network of my friends, how that graph was going to be used. Research had already shown how information I might never publicly reveal, maybe about my politics or my sexual preference or about whether I was likely to get divorced, could be inferred from that network of connections. When I saw that research, I decided to go my own way. I deleted my account. I never really regretted the decision. It does mean that I'm cut off in some ways from the goings-on of my family back in the United States or some groups that I belong to, some events that I might otherwise know about. There is a social cost when you place yourself outside Facebook. So you won't hear this podcast advocating quitting Facebook because it's too hard. Too much of our social lives has been tied into it. Facebook has monopolized our social space and monopolies well. Monopolies get regulated. Here's Rob Tursick again. So awareness, then there's a awareness of options and the ability for people to do something about it. The big problem is we're not unified. There's no open forum for the discussion about this. Uh, this isn't a political issue yet. 
but there's a backlash coming. I think it's safe to say it's not just in the United States. We're starting to see a backlash brewing, political backlash, I should say, many parts of the world, certainly in Europe. Uh, there's a push coming now where political representatives are starting to get smart about these issues. They're starting to make inquiries. They're starting to make demands. They're starting to use their legislative power and their regulatory power to change the behavior of these governments. That's going to be the battle to watch. And if you care about this issue, it's time for you to get involved in the political process and speak to your representatives. Politics can help us tame Facebook and other companies like Google and Amazon, the companies that use data profiling and artificial intelligence to shape our decisions. That will be important to help us recover from what has happened. We will need to work together as voters, as citizens, as co-creators of the next billion seconds to shape a future where we can be free from this kind of pervasive, powerful manipulation. One of the people working hard to shape that future is Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, who got me to join Facebook 10 years ago. In January 2017, he had a moment of clarity, and here's what he said about it. On day one, Kellyanne Conway came out and said alternative facts, and I was like, that's it, game over, I'm done, I can't put up with this. So that's when I really started pushing forward to say this really needs to happen. I need, for my personal feeling of values in this world, I need to be involved in trying to help with this problem. In April 2017, Jimmy Wales announced Wiki Tribune, a home for evidence-based journalism. He's reinventing journalism using evidence to counter alternative facts. Now, it's still too early to know whether this will work, but it represents one effort to craft a future where we can again think for ourselves. It's a start. We'll link to Wiki Tribune on our website at nextbillionseconds.com, along with all of the other articles referenced in this story, because we don't want you to think any of this is fake news. In part two of The Last Days of Reality, we'll look beyond what's already happened to what's about to happen, as all of this profiling and artificial intelligence gets mixed up with augmented reality, the technology most likely to replace the smartphone as your everyday interface to the world. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Audiogram by Dee Hawala. Music by Kurt Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.